So as we turn to hear God's word together, I'd like to give um, a special welcome to um, Pastor Mark, who is going to be doing um, our homily for this evening. So Mark Robinson is a um, member of our presbytery, our local church body, and he's a familiar face, has preached at City Reform numerous times before, but uh, not part of our regular lineup. So I wanted to give him a warm welcome um, and appreciation for coming to share God's word with us this evening. Well, it is good to be back with you, although I'm with you in person often in the morning, but to be back filling in. Um, I don't know what a homily is. I still don't know. I've been a, in church for decades, and I see homily. I'm not exactly sure what the, I think it means short. I don't know. What to look short sermon? Okay. We'll speed through this then. Um, our passage Though we'll only be considering a few verses, I thought it'd be good just to read the whole chapter of Zephaniah chapter 1. When I preach this at a church that doesn't put the the verses in the bulletin, um, some person came up to me and said, I couldn't even find that book, Zephaniah. So we got it laid out here, right on page 6 of your bulletin. Zephaniah chapter 1, we'll read this in our hearing together. Verses 1 through 18. The word of the Lord that came to Zephaniah, the son of Cushai, son of Gedaliah, son of Amariah, son of Hezekiah, in the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah. I will utterly sweep away everything from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. I will sweep away man and beast. I will sweep away the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea and the rubble with the wicked. I will cut off mankind from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. I will stretch out my hand against Judah and against all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and I will cut off from this place the remnant of Baal and and the name of the idolatrous priest along with the priest, those who bow down on the roofs to the host of the heavens, those who bow down and swear to the Lord and yet swear by Milcom, those who have turned back from following the Lord, who do not seek the Lord or inquire of him. Be silent before the Lord God. For the day of the Lord is near. The Lord has prepared a sacrifice and consecrated his guest. And on the day of the Lord's sacrifice, I will punish the officials and the king's sons and all who array themselves in foreign attire. On that day... I will punish everyone who leaps over the threshold and those who fill their master's house with violence and fraud. On that day, declares the Lord, a cry will be heard from the fish gate, a well from the second quarter, a loud crash from the hills. Well, O inhabitants of the mortar, for all the traders are no more. All who weigh out silver are cut off. At that time, I will search Jerusalem with lamps And I will punish the men who are complacent, those who say in their hearts, the Lord will not do good, nor will he do ill. Their goods shall be plundered and their houses laid waste. Though they build houses, they shall not inhabit them. Though they plant vineyards, they shall not drink wine from them. The great day of the Lord is near, near and hasting fast. 
The sound of the day of the Lord is bitter. The mighty man cries aloud there. A day of wrath is that day, a day of distress and anguish, a day of ruin and devastation, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness, a day of trumpet blast and battle cry against the fortified cities and against the lofty battlements. I will bring distress on mankind so that they shall walk like the blind because they have sinned against the Lord. Their blood shall be poured out like dust and their flesh like dung. Neither their silver nor their gold shall be able to deliver them on the day of the wrath of the Lord. In the fire of his jealousy, all the earth shall be consumed for a full and sudden end he will make of all the inhabitants of the earth. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, indeed, this is your word. And we would simply pray that in these words, these words of death, words of life, that we would see the word of life himself, Jesus. So cause the words of my mouth and the collective meditations of our hearts to be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So this is uh, Zephaniah. I I think I briefly mentioned, I don't think I've ever heard a message from the book of Zephaniah. I've heard a verse quoted, 317. I've never heard uh, an exposition or a homily or a sermon from the book of Zephaniah that I can uh, remember, or even for that matter, a number of the minor prophets that have major messages. And as I reflected on that fact, like why don't we hear from this book, or why haven't I heard? Maybe you've heard like long extended series from it, I don't know, I haven't. But as I've reflected on that, there's at least one salient feature. And I think it was evident from the reading. Uh, These books are almost unmitigated accounts of gloom, of judgment. Did you hear that? That was painful to think about all that unmitigated judgment. And if there's something that's true about us late modern folk in the West, we hate judgment. There is a lot of bad news in the prophets, in the minor prophets, and we want good news. We crave for it. I was drinking up the good news we were singing, weren't you? It was just filling me, getting me ready for the week. We crave good news, though we watch the evening news for some odd, contradictory reason. And we find that the prophets are full of lots of heavy gloom, judgment, and bad news. And as such, these books, they really are perfectly tuned to a kind of modern caricature of Christianity that we, that we may be accustomed to hearing. That being Christianity is just this judgmental, non-accepting, non-affirming faith that is in service of a God who is conceived to be a cosmic killjoy, whose primary motivation and activity is to go around the universe and punish people, right? That's a caricature of Christianity that people portray and 
when you read messages of heavy judgment, they tend to kind of uh, feel like they might fit and be tuned into that. We don't like judgment. We don't like wrath. There are denominations that have scoured their hymn books for any reference whatsoever to the judgment or wrath of God. And if you just trace and you do a very superficial survey of the last 100 plus years of American mainline Protestantism, you will find that they've progressively more and more come to line up with that sentiment by that uh, critic theologian Richard Niebuhr of the early 20th century, when he said that these churches have been, are places now that have a God without wrath, who brought men without sin into a kingdom without judgment through the ministrations of a Christ without a cross. You will find that that sentiment has increasingly become more and more true in the course of the last century or so, just as a point of fact. Right? We don't like judgment. We don't want to be called judgmental. And we will do what we can to avoid any sense of condemnation or negative judgment on us. Just think about what goes on psychologically in us when we're about to go into a job review. <laughs> the hackles on my neck go up because it's gonna be 45 minutes of being judged, right? Of having this judgmental gaze and evaluation of the quality of our work. Right? Judgment's a, it's a scary thing. It brings the feelings that, we, as we read through it quickly though, of verse 15, the psychological effect of judgment, I think, is portrayed very poignantly in verse 15. It's a day of wrath, right? But it's a day, and here's how people experience it, a day of distress and anguish. Distress and anguish. There's a sense of, oh, right? Not a, it's not a desirable feeling. It's a distressing feeling. It's a feeling of anguish. Let me just give a few considerations and then briefly consider just the first six or so verses of, of this judgment, which I think characterize the whole. But just a, a few considerations if you're the kind of person who has a very strong aversion to, uh, even an instinctive kind of reaction to the thought of judgment, right? Divine judgment in particularly. Consider just a couple things, right? Consider a moral theological point, a cultural point, and a personal, personal point. Moral theologically speaking, if we can't accept the notion, at least, of judgment, especially negative judgment, punitive type judgment where we're punished, if we can't accept that, on what grounds can we accept positive judgment or, or the notion of rewards? If we don't have a moral economy that admits and allows for condemnation for a bad evaluation of things, how, how could that economy accommodate a positive assessment, rewards, a commendation? If we don't have a thing as, such, such a thing as commendation, how could we have commendation? Those things are set over against each other, so they hang together. Punishment and reward have to kind of be available in any economy where we're going to talk about positive rewards and positive judgments, favorable judgments, right? You know? They hang together. Here's a cultural point. I think much of the diffidence or just the kind of ah toward 
judgment towards the notion of God's divine judgment comes from a sort of, comes from cultural comfort, I think, that we just enjoy. Most social orders throughout history have been ones which, with much more oppressive government structures, dictators, evil kings, communist groups, parties. Most social orders throughout history have existed with a much more oppressive, unjust, evil, transparently invasive, oppressive, evil uh, social order than what we experience here in our modern Western nation states. And you know what the Christian response and even non-Christian response often is, articulated multiple times throughout scripture. The response is to that, how long, O oh Lord, until you judge? <laughs> so let's not be bougie <laughs> and comfortable. If you surveyed all the phone calls to police in the city of Pittsburgh, like who calls the police in distress? It's going to be in low, it's going to be older women in low-income, crime-infested communities like Homewood. What is it? They're calling the police because they want judgment on criminals. They want the law enforced. They want judgment on crime. So that people in situations of social oppression experience, experience a lot of evil, who are sinned against and by power, more powerful people, they cannot, in fact, they would have a hard time believing in a God who did not execute judgment. So some of our diffidence to the notion of the judgment of God stems from a kind of cultural comfort that we're privileged to enjoy and don't have to think about it. And finally, personally, look, if, if you've gotten to this point in your life and you don't ever see yourself as kind of a knucklehead in need of judgmental correction, then you're not paying attention. <laughs> Any level of self-awareness should lead us to believe that we need, to be, we need the, the correction of judgment. Not all the time, but we need it. And so the, so the notion of being judged should make sense at some level to us because we ourselves find ourselves in situations that have needed it. Well, anyway, Zephaniah, the prophet here, this little minor prophet with a major message, he, he prophesied late in Judah's existence, Judah the southern kingdom. He was late in their history. He prophesied about 40, 35 to 45 years before they would actually be judged with the Babylonians coming in and destroying, burning down Jerusalem, knocking the walls down, destroying the temple, taking off the, uh, the people into captivity and killing a whole bunch of them. So he prophesied about one generation uh, before that, sometime during the reign of Judah's last great king, Josiah. He, was, he ministered and served during that time. So this is one generation before they experience the judgment that Zephaniah articulates. Let's just briefly consider together. From first six, seven verses, 
three, three points about the judgment of God here from this passage, from this little prophet. Let's think about the reality of judgment. Let's think about the reason for judgment. And let's think about the judgment that hopes. Hope in judgment. It's never an unmitigated, complete announcement of utter, complete condemnation without some light, without some hope. So the reality of judgment, the reason for judgment, and the judgment that hopes briefly. Consider the reality of judgment. The book is about specifically God's intent to judge Judah, right? The southern nation, his people. Israel, the northern kingdom, had already been blasted, already been judged. Here's Judah. Judah's about 150 years later. This book is, and others are speaking to the judgment of Judah, but it's not limited to Judah. The whole world is in view because the whole world is subject to God's judgments, though specifically Judah is in view here. And other nations are mentioned actually a little bit later. The description of judgment, you look at verse two, the description of judgment is cosmic and universal in scope. What's it gonna be like? I will utterly sweep away everything from the face of the earth. That's bigger than Judah. And in verse three, I will sweep away man and beast. Animals are not left untouched. This is a picture of the comprehensive judgment of God. Nobody or, or no thing is left unaddressed. It is a full and complete action. God doesn't miss something. No one can escape it. And you get these kinds of pictures whenever the discussion of God's judgment comes up. You get these pictures of this kind of comprehensiveness from an omniscient God. You see it even in the New Testament where there's this kind of thoroughness to God's judgment where Jesus talks about our speech. He says, I tell you on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. Every careless word. It's not just our public speaking or just private conversations, right? There's a, there's a thoroughness to it. And so God's judgment is often described in these cosmic, universal, comprehensive ways to say something about him, that he, he takes care of it all and doesn't miss anything. But notice a little bit more, notice a little more the nature of this, this judgment, this, re, which is this real judgment, this way that God actually executes and adjudicates over the world. You see it, what we got there? In verse three, we're told something about the birds of the heaven and the fish of the sea. We actually, in our call to worship, I don't know if you caught it there in Psalm eight, it mentions about having dominion over this exact, this, with this exact phrase, over the birds of the heaven and the fish of the sea. Sounds like Genesis <laughs> with a twist. The animals, the birds of the heaven and the fish of the sea aren't being created and then named and then having dominion exercised by Adam. They're being swept away. Right? Also, mankind is being cut off. 
in Genesis what's going on with mankind. Mankind is multiplying. So this is a kind of inverse Genesis account. It's saying God's judgment is a kind of decreation. It's a kind of going back to the disorder. Pre-creation, where God separates and orders. Well, sin has an inverse effect. His judgments operate in such a way that the consequences of sin come about. It's decreation. Instead of fruitful multiplication, you have this kind of fateful massacring going on, cutting off humans. That's the language of your seed will no longer produce in the earth. That's the nature of God's judgment. What does sin do? It undoes. It inverts the good. This is why Augustine says, sin doesn't produce anything. It's not a material. It doesn't create. It can only kill. It can only take away. It's privation. It takes good away. It doesn't make anything. It doesn't even make a substance called evil. That's the effects of sin. It's, it's a kind of decreation, like the flood. The flood was a kind of going back to where God hovered over the waters before he separated them. It's a decreation. That's the nature of sin. So, the, so often the judgment of God looks like the consequences, the, the natural consequences that attend participation in sin. It doesn't look like some special particular sui generis decree. Sometimes God just does a thing from heaven, but very often the judgment is just an outgrowth of the operations of sin, of nature just going backwards and things just going from order to chaos instead of chaos into order. But a bigger question, that's just kind of the reality of judgment. There's so much more that could be said about that. The, the bigger question is not surrounding the reality of judgment, but what's the reason for it? Why did Judah experience such strong, severe judgment on them as a nation? And by extension, many other people. What's the reason? Well, four through six gives us the reason for the judgment. We're told of the reality in the first few verses. You see it in four through six. Look at this. So God says he's going to stretch out his hand against Judah and against all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. He's going to cut off. Who's he going to cut off? Look at this. The remnant of Baal. Baal worshipers. Those who bow down on the roofs to the hosts of the heavens, verse 5. Astral star worshipers, right? So Baal worshipers is one group of people. Baal was the dominant ancient Near Eastern god that Israel struggled to stay away from. Had to do with fertility, right? In an agrarian culture, your life depends on the fertility of the land. Your life depends on reproduction, so you could see the sort of socioeconomic pull to fall into the idolatry of Baal worship because it, had so much, it was so germane to the necessity of you continue on as a people and living. Astral worship, star worship had to do with the, the belief that our destiny, our future 
could be discerned and divined from understanding stars, right? So that had to do with future, wanting to know what was going to happen. But then there's this other group. This group is different. This Milcom worshiper, people who went to the house of the Lord, who went down, who bowed down and swore to the Lord, and yet swore by Milcom. That's Molech. These are syncretists. They wanted to cover all their bases. <laughs> they wanted to keep their true worship, but they also wanted to add in Molech. And Moloch worship was about as bad as it gets, often attended by child sacrifice, prostitution, cults. So the, why were they judged? If you put all those together, what's the reason for the judgment? The reason for their judgment is idolatry. False worship. Breaking the first commandment. Jeremiah articulates this. Moses warned the Israelites about this when he was in the valley across from the Jordan in the promised land. And Deuteronomy tells them, when you go into the land, don't take, don't take their gods. He was emphasizing, make sure you, you're faithful to the keeping the first commandment. The reason they were judged so severely is because they took to themselves other gods. Spiritual adultery. That's, that's the reason. And it's detailed here and specifically. And what's interesting too is the first group, the first specific class of people. So we're told that what they did, bell worshiping, Moloch worship, astral gazing worship, right, of the stars, going on a roof and somehow doing a religious service to the stars. But the first group of people we're told about who were named of all the various classes of influential people, the first group mentioned are the priest. The priest. Right in verse four, in the name of the idolatrous priest along with the priest. It wasn't the politicians. They're gonna get their comeuppance, as it were, later. It wasn't the people in general, it's the priest. They're the first group singled out as recipients of this, this judgment. Because of, and it, and it makes sense, of course, they are the people in charge of worship. They lived around the, the tabernacle and then the temple. They protected, they were in charge of conducting Israel's and Judah's worship life. And they were leading the people in idolatry. The officers of the church, right? I don't want to get the elders here all scared or anything. You know, <laughs> but this is, there's a reason for that. It makes sense. Here's the reason. Because worship is something that you can see from Scripture that determines everything else about our life. It does. What we, what we put at the center of our existence, what we worship, defines us. We become what we worship. We are what we worship. What did David Foster Wallace says? He says, everybody's got to worship something. It's a matter of what we worship. We're, we're hard, we're wired for worship. It's, in this, it's deep in our DNA. We're homo liturgicus. 
worshiping animals. If we don't worship the true God, we will worship something else, and it will define us. It will direct us. It will be the orientation of our entire existence. And there's so many ways that the Bible just points this out, right? And in in, when they, they had the tabernacle and they would travel around with this moving tabernacle, where did they put the tabernacle? They put it right smack in the middle of the camp to say symbolically, this is the center of your life. It's not on the periphery of the edges. It wasn't a little add-on. It's in the center. They went to this very center to worship symbolically, right? Ethically speaking, the Ten Commandments, before you get to honor your father and mother and don't murder and don't commit adultery and don't steal and don't bear false witness, don't covet, before you get to those kind of neighborly commands, you have to first make sure you have the right God, number one, no other gods before, that you worship in the right way. You don't make graven images. You, you, you esteem him properly. You don't take his name in vain. It's not light. There's kaboth, there's heaviness, gravitas to our recognition of God, and we worship him when he tells us to. We've got to get that right. The implicit assumption or presumption is if we don't get the right God and the right worship, we won't get right neighbor love. <laughs> it just won't flow correctly. If we don't get the vertical, right? Again, telling us that worship, particularly who we worship, attached to how and when is central to defining all of life. And if you think about this, there's a semantic argument. Our word culture comes from cult, which is to say our, your way of life, your culture, is an outworking of your cult, your religion. Life is just externalized religion. What you worship will drive how you live. So it makes sense for the prophets, not just Zephaniah here, to go after the priest, to go after the false worship, because that's the center of their existence. There's so many more we can, you read Genesis, if you have, a, if you have an eye that's tuned to sort of Jewish tabernacle imagery, what the opening chapters of Genesis are, are not just this kind of bare account of creation, I mean that is there, but it's not just that. It's a picture of a temple palace with a man who's not just producing things by laboring the ground, but he's priesting. <laughs> it's worship. Living life becomes this expression of worship. And all of this is central to who we are. So when, they, when God announces this severe judgment that makes you shake and gives, makes us nervous to read about in its details and its description, he's saying you've thrown off everything by your idolatry, by your spiritual idolatry, by your false worship. Worshiping the one true God, whether in this gathered sense, which we do, do tonight and most of us in the morning, right? Or in, its, in our scattered individual sense, broadly, all of life is the, is the most definitive or most defining thing about us. It's the most orienting reality for all of us, and it's why ancient Judah was judged. They got worship wrong. And this is not just, let's not keep it in ancient Near Eastern categories. The apostle reminds us 
that things will go chaotic for those, in Romans 1, who worship and serve the creature, some creative thing over the creator who's blessed forever. Everything will get off. That's the calibrating point. That idolatry is really probably, I think you could probably say the number one sin as it were. And also what this means. You know our biggest problems, think about your biggest problems, think about the biggest struggles you have, the things you carry deep in your heart and maybe they're so painful that you don't even mention them, but that just, just throw your equilibrium off. If we get underneath that, let's talk and use some modern categories like addictions, uh, which are now substance abuse disorder is the language now. Or just other kinds of uh, garden variety sins, breaking the commandment. You know, if you get underneath them, our sins, one way of looking at it, if worship is central, our, our, our sins, the things that get to us the most, are worship disorders. <laughs> they are us attaching and giving too much value to a thing which should not be valued so much. And as we grow as Christians, as you grow as believers, very often those things aren't even bad things. They're good things that you, you, you esteem ulti- with ultimate value. They become too important. And everything begins to break down. We get this kind of Faustian disintegration because we've given ourselves so completely to even a good thing. Right? That's the big problem. That's the reason for judgment here. That's the thing that will throw us off cosmically if we don't have the right God at the center. And just finally, closing up. So it's not surprising, given that worship is really at the heart of their problem, who they worship, you know, idolatry, how. Given that that's at the center, it's not surprising that the hope in this judgment actually is framed in terms of worship, liturgical language. Look at verse seven, just to close out before we take together in the visible word of the Lord's Supper. Look at verse seven, it's an odd verse. Be silent before the Lord God, for the day of the Lord is near. The Lord has prepared a, and here's the liturgical language, a sacrifice. And here's some more liturgical language. And consecrated his guest. So the day of Lord's judgment is seen, his day of his judgment on Judah is seen as the Lord preparing a sacrifice, setting his guest apart, then engaging in the sacrifice of judgment. But here's what this this is basically saying, you probably heard the saying, uh, the statement, if you're not on, if you don't have a seat at the table, you're probably on the menu. You ever heard that, right? If you don't have decision-making power, if you don't have a seat at the table, then you're probably having the decisions made about you. You're on the menu. <laughs> They're making the decisions about you. Here's a picture of people seating at the table, but also being the ones on the menu. In other words, the sacrifice and its later 
kind of opened up toward the end of the chapter. The sacrifice, I think, are the people of Judah being judged. Their death, their bloody death is the sacrifice for their sins. They are being sacrificed. God has prepared them and then judged them 35 years later. You say, where is the hope in that? Ah, sacrifice. There's not just, this isn't the only, this isn't even the main kind of sacrifice. This is a warning. This is God saying, here's what's going to happen if you don't repent. It's like Jonah, Jonah who gave the most powerful five-word sermon ever, in 40 days, Nineveh destroyed, and the whole city repented. This is a warning that they will be sacrificed if they don't turn. They aren't to be the sacrifice. Isaiah tells us of the sacrifice that will that can that will take the full judgment of God. There's only two sacrifices. We are going to pay for our sins or someone else is going to pay for them. And Isaiah tells us Jesus was the guilt offering. Right? He said yet it was the will of the Lord. Isaiah as he's describing the servant who was Christ and Israel to this day that our Jewish friends have trouble reading this passage as Israel because they're like, why would God sacrifice a perfect people, a holy people? Why, why would he sacrifice people who, who, who have repented and have their act together? Well, it's not talking about the people. It's talking about Christ. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. That's the sacrifice. He shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. That the Lord looks back, it's a picture of Christ looking back on his, uh, the offering of himself, of God sending him and offering him up. Seeing that that was the needed action to cleanse, forgive, save his people from judgment so that they wouldn't be the sacrifice. And Jesus sees that and he's satisfied. There's only two possible sacrifices. We can pay for our sins. And many people, many people are, many people, you know, are, when we engage in self-loathing, we are trying to live out a sense of our own intuitive sense of not being sufficient, of something being wrong with us, right? You go around and with low self-esteem, self-loathing, that's basically saying, I don't deserve anything, I'm such a screwed up person, I need to be debased, right? A lot of people live out there, they, 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 they pay for their sins that way, or even ultimately paying for our sins in eternal separation from God and condemnation. We will pay for our sins in judgment of God, or we will have eyes of faith to see that God has placed the sin of his people on Christ, who is the guilt offering who takes our sin, and we will walk in liberty, as Charles Wesley's song goes, We'll, our chains will fall off, we'll rise, go forth, walk as free people. Those are the only two people, the only two options. The hope is in God giving you eyes to see that he is pleased um, 
to uh, look at Christ and punish him and credit it to me, credit it to us. Those are the only two possibilities. And then the judgment of God doesn't become something that we dread. We see it as a beautiful exhibition of God's character to rectify the world, to make it right. And he makes it right through Jesus. Paul was speaking to a bunch of idolaters in Areopagus in the book of Acts, and he gives that famous sermon there before all the wise people there in the the debate area. And he, he said to them, he said, the time of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. So he's calling them to turn. And he says, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. He recognized the call to repentance, to turn away from our sin, happens, can happen, because God has appointed today to judge his own son, Christ, and to put our sins on him. And so we're called to turn to him, and then we can sing God's, justice, God's judgments are true and righteous and are beautiful and life-giving even to those who look to the one who was truly sacrificed for our sins. Let's pray together.